The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, um, I'd like to ask a favor of all of you. Um, my neck is kind of stiff, and I'd like to be able to see all of you, so if you wouldn't mind kind of moving, maybe moving a little closer to the front and maybe bringing chairs so that um, my failing eyesight can uh, see who I'm talking to and give you all some kind of um, uh, visibility. Um, Tonight I'm going to be talking about our sense of self. And so some of you may have a sense of I'm not the kind of person that asks questions or I'm not the kind of person who sits close to other people. <laughs> so we're, go- we're going to uh, hopefully uh, challenge some of those ideas in a friendly way. So thank you all for doing that. Um, I'm going to be here uh, this week and next week, if nothing changes. And um, I was trying to think of what to talk about for two weeks in a row. There aren't too many Buddhist lists that only have two elements to them. So I'm going to talk about uh, an important list that has three elements. It's called the... um, Marks or characteristics of existence. So that sounds pretty existential or highfalutin. But it's really something that's uh, important for all of us to start to pay attention to as we start doing this meditation practice. So the three, uh, I'll say the Pali names, are Anicca, Anatta, and Dukkha. And I like saying the Pali names because none of them have just very simple translations into English. So the first, so I'll, and I'll start with the third of the three, dukkha, which I, I suspect many of you have heard that word before. Is that true? Have, have you heard of dukkha? <laughs> it's really pretty central to, to Buddhist teaching. Um, sometimes it's translated as suffering. But really, it's a whole range, you know, all the way from, you know, minor irritation, annoyance, uh, dissatisfaction, uh, disruption, all the way to, um, to suffering, you know, to uh, often associated with some kind of, some kind of contraction. When I, when I think of Duke, I, also, I often think of there's some contraction going on. Maybe it's a contraction of the body. It might be a contraction of the mind. Or it might be a contraction of the heart. You know, some, something going on that we don't really want to open to. We don't really want to experience. And what the Buddha taught in the simplified version of the Four Noble Truths is the, his first noble truth was that there's that it's important that we actually do turn and look at suffering, that we do turn and look at this dukkha, rather than rest with all of our 
mental strategies of trying to avoid looking at it or you know somehow dismissing it or you know trying to put as much distance as we can from this process of contraction and suffering uh, you know he said well it's important that you really notice it and recognize it um, the, the second noble truth of course is that after we've looked at this process and seen it going on that we might be able to look a little bit deeper and see what's fueling it what is it that we're doing or holding on to or um, how are we relating to it in a way that keeps it going so that's what was called the second noble truth The, the third noble truth points to the possibility that we can stop doing whatever it is that keeps this contraction, this dukkha, going. That if we really pay careful attention and notice what, you know, notice what the dukkha is like, notice what, what we're, how we're relating to it in a way that keeps it going, that there's a possibility of freedom from that. And then finally, the fourth noble truth, you know, this is, this is trying to kind of do all of Buddhism in five minutes. <laughs> but the fourth noble truth has to do with there's a path leading, that, leading to the end of suffering. And that path contains, it's, it's an eightfold path, but it, in, in kind of a, even a simpler way, it, it has to do with how we relate to other people, our ethics, it has to do with the training of our hearts and minds through this mindfulness practice, through developing concentration and equanimity. Um, so there, there's, there's something to do with how we relate to other people. There's a way of how we relate to our own hearts and minds and practices we can do to... Um, train and purify them so that they have so that we're not so susceptible to getting caught by these patterns of suffering and finally there's some wisdom there's a wisdom component that we can notice what our intentions are for our lives and how we're going to view our experience in a way that can keep us from getting caught over and over again in these patterns of contraction and suffering. So dukkha is kind of a big deal, you know. I mean, it's some—it's it, really what this, this whole practice is all about: recognizing it and then um, dealing with it more skillfully than we have in the past. So that's one of the, th- the three characteristics of existence is, is, is dukkha. Um, the, the Buddha um, had kind of delineated two other ways, um, characteristics that we often um, get deluded by. And so this, this, the the first one that I had mentioned, so we, we talked about dukkha, which is the third one. The, the first one is uh, anicca, 
impermanence. And so I suspect we've all had some experience of recognizing the impermanent nature of things. When I first came to IMC 15 years ago, it wasn't, wasn't even here, it was in Palo Alto. And um, I used to think that I knew who the Sangha was, you know, the same people kind of showing up Monday after Monday. After all these years, Lewis is back. <laughs> He's the one person that I remember from 15 years ago. So welcome, Lewis. It's great to see you. Um, yeah. So one, one of the ways that one of the ways that we can um, fuel this um, dukkha, this unsatisfactoriness, is by seeing things that are impermanent as permanent. You know, that we don't recognize that, particularly the things we like, you know, you, you prepare a wonderful meal, you get all, you know, great recipe, you get all of the food together, you cook it, and you start to eat it, and it's just, it's really, really pleasant. Um, and then the meal's over, and it's gone. You know, so can you hang on to that meal? You know, can you hang on to that experience? You know, it's, it's a risen, it's, it's an impermanent phenomenon. The next time you might try to hang on to it by making three times as much food. So you have the first plate of it, and you go, oh, this is wonderful. You say, well, I know, then I'll have another plate full of food. <laughs> and you eat the second one, and it's like, well, that wasn't quite as good. And then you have the third one, and it's actually kind of unpleasant. You know, it's like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm stuffed. You know, this, is, this, this actually is pretty unpleasant. So you can't, you know, so you can't hang on to the pleasant things. You can't hang on to the, the enjoyment that, they're gonna, that it's, it's going to come and go. So... So I suspect we've all had some experience of that. And in the practice, as one's mind gets stiller, we can start to see the impermanence of everything that we're experiencing, you know, moment to moment, arising and and passing away. And so that's, so seeing that characteristic of your experience is really um, valuable to really start to see um, what is it that we're trying to hang on to that um, is actually unsat- that the, the trying to hang on to is unsatisfactory. And then the, th- the third mark of existence is anatta, not self. And that's what I wanted to talk about tonight. And um, partly I wanted to talk about it because I think it's one of the, oh, maybe the hardest of, of, the, um, of those three for me to see. And I had a very strong experience of it over the last couple of weeks um, that I wanted to talk about tonight. 
And anatta has to do, well, there's been a lot of talks given about anatta, and there's a lot of confusion. People say, well, doesn't that mean there's no self? And it's better translated as not self, that what we look at and think is who we are in a permanent, unchanging way is not true. And that we actually spend a lot of time creating this sense of self, often to our own detriment. So, um, so rather than thinking of self as a thing, we can think of it as a process that we're continually creating a sense of who we are. And, you know, that's okay. But we can sometimes, we can sometimes actually start believing it. <laughs> we can start believing that that sense of self that we're continually creating is actually some fixed, unchanging thing. So, and that, and that can often be um, really unpleasant, can, can actually fuel a lot of the contraction and suffering, the, the dukkha. So, I wanted to talk tonight about something that's happened just over the last two weeks that sort of resolved itself this afternoon in a talk with one of my superiors <laughs> at work. Um, because I think, I think we can see suffering, you know, the, 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 our dissatisfaction you know, with a little bit of concentration, you can start to see it fairly easily at least some forms of it. Um, impermanence, you know, if you really start turning your mind to that, you can kind of see impermanence. Seeing the sense of self that you're creating all the time, I th for me, is a lot harder to see. And the, the experience that I was going to relate to you tonight was I was able to see it because it was causing so much pain. Um, in my job, it's my job to get um, people to review proposals that come into NASA. I work for NASA. So I had spent several weeks over the last several months going through a process of, of reading these proposals finding people that were qualified to review them, compiling all of the reviews, reading the proposals myself, and coming up with a prioritized list for our division, which, you know, took a lot of time and a lot of critical thinking about, you know, what's really going to help this organization. And I passed it by kind of level one of management. I passed it by level two of management. Everyone seemed to think it was great. I talked to level three of management on the telephone and explained to them why I prioritized 
things the way that I did. And I thought, well, that's that. That's great. You know, I mean, it was a lot of work, but, you know, I, I felt like I contributed. The next day, I get an email from level two of management to level three of management saying, yeah, you know, we thought about it. And we decided Jim's, pro- Jim's priorities were exactly upside down. We're, you know, we're, <laughs> we're turning our, you know, the order of our list upside down. And um, and nobody talked to me, you know. Nobody called me. Nobody said, you know, what do you think about this? What you know? How? And quite ang- quite honestly, my first reaction was I was pissed. I was really upset that I hadn't been included in the process. That my judgment, you know, that I felt disrespected. Um, uh, Oh, all sorts of thoughts, all sorts of stories came up, all sorts of feelings came up. You know, I really thought, um, and I could feel kind of hatred coming up for my level two manager and level three, and I had stories about why they did this. Um, I started coming up with strategies about how I'd never talk to them, talk to them again. Uh, you know, or just, you know, uh, just, I mean, it was... I mean, it, it's kind of funny when I say it now, but, you know, it was, it was really quite painful to, to um, have this um, sense of who I was challenged in such a way. You know, it was like um, self-doubt arose. So there was a little bit of wisdom that also arose. First of all, I realized, well, not talking to my upper-level managers ever for the rest of my life probably wasn't, probably wasn't a skillful strategy. And, um, but also talking to them when I was angry and um, irritated and... Um, you know, some even some feeling of humiliation, I realized that it probably wasn't that where I was at the time, it wasn't a good time to, to call and find out what was going on. So I called my, my first level of management, my branch chief, and I, you know, I, I felt safe that I could kind of explore what was going on inside with him in a way that... Um, felt safe. And about a week later he called or he, he came and talked to me about um, how some even further up in management people had some ideas of how things ought to be prioritized. So even though these people at higher levels had no technical expertise and hadn't read the proposals. They had read the short little blurbs I had written about them, and there are certain keywords that they picked up on. So I started to get a sense of why things had unfolded the way they were. And that was real helpful to me because it helped me, well, 
So it, it helped me let go. So backing up a little bit. So when I was when I was experiencing all of these afflictive emotions and all of these stories and you know just really churned up, um, you know, it came to me. Well, can't I just let this go? Can't I just say, okay, you know, this is how the world works. Sometimes you do your best, and then your results get completely ignored. And I realized that um, I wasn't ready to let go. That there was still some experiencing of the emotions that had to happen. And that if I would have said, well, I'm going to let go of the outcome of this, that it really would have been more out of a sense of indifference or resentment and it wouldn't have been a true seeing through the experience. So, um, so I had. I I think I really had to, f- you know, feel. What does it feel like to take things personally? Because I was definitely taking this personally. The the the. Um, what had happened really was fueling stories that I had of, do people value me? Do I have something positive to contribute? Um, and so it wasn't until just in the last, well, really just this afternoon when I sat down and talked with my division chief, that I realized that none of this had anything to do with me. I mean, it wasn't like, it wasn't like, yeah, that it was just bureaucracy (laughs) doing what it does. And that all of the stories that, that I was making, I mean, I was making stories up about, about me. I was making up stories up about the managers and actually, none of it was really true. So, um, so I'm, I feel. So, first of all, I feel very relieved now <laughs> that um, that you know some seeing through the taking things personally has occurred, and. How can I say this? And that I was willing to see the process through. I mean, sometimes you think, well, the way that I'll not take this personally is just, you know, kind of cut myself off. Like just, okay, you know, these people obviously can't see a good decision if it's right in the front of their faces. And... Um, And so I recognized, okay, well, I don't need to prove to somebody that I have good judgment, but I also need to respect the work that I did 
and stand up for it. So this process, so this, this practice isn't about, it's not about when you're faced with uh, challenges to your sense of self, you just automatically give in. You know, that there's a way that you can stand up for what you believe in and what you think is right and also not take it personally. So, yeah. So that that was a very, um, maybe kind of on a course level, a sense of seeing how the creation of a sense of self works and how it can uh, cause problems. But I think every day there, there's other ways in which we uh, identify with things that really are impersonal uh, phenomenon. Like when you're, you're sitting here and um, you, know, you start to feel strong sensations somewhere in the body, like in your knee. And you can start to think, this is my pain. You know, this is my body. This is my pain. Uh, I'm the only one that's ever felt this kind of pain. I've also even found in sitting sometimes thinking like, well, not only is this uncomfortable, but I'm not the kind of person that's going to move. So even, you know, so... It's important that the other yogis see that I'm not moving, even though I'm in excruciating pain. You know, the, so the, those are some of the ways that um, we can get caught by um, identifying with and creating a sense of self. So. I think that's that's all that I um, have to say for tonight. But I'd really like to hear from as many of you as are willing to talk about um, what experiences you may have had of uh, taking things personally. You know, taking um, remarks from other people personally taking um, the aging of the body personally. It's another big one. Um, You know, taking, I I guess another aspect of aging that I've noticed is um, forgetting things. You know, kind of as I age, I find that it's just harder and harder for me to remember a lot of things. You know, so sometimes I take that personally. Like, this is this is not. I'm not the kind of person that forgets things. I'm not the kind of person that 
um, can't sit for 45 minutes without moving. So I'm, um, I'm wondering if maybe, Maureen, if, if you could, if any of you, um, I, I don't know if this resonates with any of you, um, <laughs> but if it does and you're willing to share with us uh, what taking pre- things personally has been like for you. Hi, my name is Joanne, and uh, I found the concept of self uh, to be one of the most difficult of the three concepts to really internalize of the impermanence, the suffering, and the self. And I think that tonight, actually, you did help kind of provide me some insights um, with regard to, I think what you're describing a lot right now is a sense of identity, is the way I've thought about it in the past, mm-hmm. that you might like identify yourself as a yogic person, and therefore you must behave in a certain way. Um, you know, and and the sense of self being something that is not permanent enables us to actually follow a path towards ending, you know, towards, you know, freeing yourself from suffering because if you're unwilling to change, then how are you going to be able to to experience um, find more skillful way to respond if you're too stuck on yourself. So I think that was a, a big insight that came out of this. And I've had a lot of personal experiences in the past year, moving from into a management role with a team of five people and being challenged in ways I haven't been challenged before. Um, and I think that having participated in uh, the sitting-type meditation has kind of helped with when I get challenged in ways that I'm not used to, mm-hmm. instead of immediately responding, sitting back, thinking through it, mm-hmm. and then I um, probably ended up having a more positive response than would have had otherwise. So thanks. That's what I wanted to share. Great. Thank you. Yes. I'm Marshall. Um, Something you said about, um, you said that you were, when you first experienced this um, sort of anatta attack, um, you, you kind of, you, you realized that it wasn't a good idea at first to let go of that clinging. Is that, does that sound right? Well, actually, it was more like what I thought letting go meant was really trying to bypass experiencing right. what that identification feels like. You know, it was kind of like, okay, I'll just let this go. But really, it wasn't truly letting go of the identification. It was kind of going into indifference. So you know. in a way, that letting, that letting go would have been a new form of clinging, yeah. So that's so the, that reminded me of um, actually the last conversation I had with Andrea um, really sort of opened my eyes about something I uh, very very much along the same lines because it's something I'd struggled with this concept of letting go because I kept telling kept noticing all these experiences in my life where it was not a good idea to let go of something and I kept hearing in the talks let go let go let go and. I'm like, this doesn't seem right to me. So um, I st- struggled with this for a while. And finally, in my last conversation with, uh, with Andrea, 
um, she pointed out that, that actually in, in every situation there's many forms of clinging and it's, not, it's, it's both not wise and not possible to let go of all form of, forms of clinging. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the important thing is, um, this is what I realized, was that um, the, the element of wisdom is vital. That you need to introduce wisdom to know the timing, know when, when to let go of clinging, and also to identify which forms of clinging are the wise things to let go of in each moment. So in a sense, like, like in your experience, one of the first things you let go of was your stories. But you didn't let go of yourself. You still sort of had this sense of self, of, of your integrity. And you didn't let go of that. So you sort of chose, you, pick and, you picked and choose which forms of clinging you wanted to let go of in, in the most wise way, the, the, the way that would uh, minimize suffering. Does that sound... Like a good interpretation of what yeah. you said? Well, right now I find myself clinging to my sense of my own stories that I told. I said, Wait, you're, you're reinterpreting my stories. <laughs> but I'll, I'll go with it. Um, you know, I think part of it, you know, for me, it's really not so much of a conscious, conceptual, okay, now I'm going to let go of this, as noticing what's most painful to hold on to? And my stories about how I was going to treat the people that I thought had dissed me, when I would sit with those stories and ideas and I really paid attention, it was pretty painful to think about, am I going to go through the next seven years of my career uh, expressing contempt and resentment <laughs> for my co you know two of my superior coworkers and you know it's just like oh yeah this you know this is this you know i really don't want to hang on to that one so it wasn't so much like i made a decision i'm going to let go of it mm-hmm. as i could see oh you know this is i i really don't want to you know this is not going to work for me to hang on to resentment. Um, so, so I, f- I find that um, the letting go that actually sticks, the letting go that actually doesn't result in me going, okay, well, I let that go before, but I'm, I'm taking that back. <laughs> is the one that comes out of more of a a visceral um, heart or body-centered energy that informs me that it's just time to let go of this one. Does does that help? It sounds like you were were kind of letting the suffering be your guide. You sort of identified areas, okay, this one really hurts. I'm going to let go of this one. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, I had one... One experience of letting go um, that didn't involve that visceral um, mm. dissatisfaction. Uh, it was almost actually it was almost exactly 13 years ago that I decided to stop drinking, and that was I was in Sweden at the time. There, there's this hotel they make out of ice and snow called the Ice Hotel, and 
I, I was staying there with some of my coworkers, and it's so cold that they can't serve beer. The only alcohol they can serve is vodka. And they serve the vodka in these little shot glasses made out of ice. <laughs> and, you know, so we'd have these shots of vodka. And at some point I recognized, you know, I keep thinking that my happiness is going to be after the next drink. Like, one more drink is going to do it for me. And then suddenly, like, a light just went on in my head. There, the happiness that I'm looking for doesn't lie in having another drink. It just doesn't. And that came from years of experience. And so at that point, I just made a you know, I mean, it was kind of a decision, but it was, it was very, I mean, it wasn't an agonizing decision. It was just like, drinking is not going to get me the happiness that I really seek. And so then that was it. And, you know, I never, I didn't have to struggle with it. It wasn't so much a thought process. It was just kind of a, a very simple recognition. Oh, this is, you know, this is not leading to the happiness that I'm looking for. So I don't know exactly how I would describe how that feels different than coming up, making a decision in my head, but it, it's, it's definitely different than just a, a, a conceptual, rational um, decision. It seems like it is somewhat conceptual because you're sort of looking at your, your whole past. You're sort of seeing the pattern as opposed to saying, okay, it brings me short-term pleasure. Um, so in that sense, it, it brings you happiness. But you, what you were sort of identifying was a sort of long-term pattern. It's not really getting you what you're really wanting. Right. Well, I think there's also an element of seeing that seeking pleasure wasn't leading to happiness. You know, we often equate the more pleasure that I can have, the happier I'll be. But then the pleasure never lasts, right? You know, it's, it's this impermanent thing. So, I mean, not that there's anything wrong with pleasure sometimes, but, I mean, I'm, I don't, didn't decide to lead the life of an aesthetic of, you know, eschewing all pleasure, but also not getting mm, trapped into thinking that I, I need to just keep seeking more pleasure to, to, to be happy, to have some contentment and, and sense of peace. Thanks for the, your thoughts on that. Sure. Welcome. Yes, could you? Thanks so much for your talk. Um, I'm pretty new to all of this, and so a lot of it is discovery for me. And I think what I've discovered um, is that self is really sneaky. Um, so I grew out of, you know, 
knowing that chocolate brought pleasure and so only ever wanting to experience the taste of chocolate and eating chocolate and things like that, things that are so obviously pleasurable. I don't feel like I have a lot of trouble letting go of my attachment to things that are so clear like that. But I think a lot of times in my interpersonal interactions where something makes me angry or frustrated or I feel that pit in my stomach feeling or tightening of my chest or whatever the signs of sort of stress are, it's not always really easy to say, oh, it's because I'm clinging to a particular pleasure or avoiding a particular non-pleasure. Mm -hmm. And when I think about it more and more, I realize I'm sort of defending my sense of self. Whatever it was, mm -hmm. was some sort of an affront. And so I find like that many of my day-to-day -day stressors are related to um, defending my sense of self more than they are trying to cling to the pleasure of something or trying to get away from the displeasure of something. Mm. I think it's really sneaky. Mm. So could I ask you, what, what uh, aspects of your sense of self do you find you're defending most often? I should think more about that. <laughs> um, I mean, you don't, you don't have to respond no, if you don't like. No, I'm, I'm but, totally you know, going to go think a lot about that. It might be helpful that. for other people to hear, you know, what, what, what are those things about yourself that are just, you're not willing to question or have challenged? Sure. I think, um, you know, anytime my pride is hurt or I feel disrespected or my work is questioned or something like that, um, I think those things I all, you know, I take really personally. I'd have to, I, I will definitely think more about, is it something particular, like I really see myself as an X type of person, and so when something like that is questioned, I get particularly upset. You know, mm -hmm. I would, I, I should think more about that. Mm -hmm. Great, well, thank you for saying that. I mean, and so since I asked you the question, I mean, when I was growing up and in high school, I was a very good student. You know, I, I won all the math awards in high school and everything else. And now, as I'm older and I work with other scientists, it's often very difficult for me to realize I'm not the smartest person in the room. <laughs> you know, like there's, there's a lot of smart people around. And so... Um, So then how, how do I deal with that skillfully? Um, I mean, for a while I would, I would figure out, well, yeah, they're pretty smart, but, you know, I bet they don't, you know, I bet they don't know how to sail or, you know what I mean? <laughs> Go through all of these comparative things about, you know, like trying to figure out how, I, I still have to be you know, like actually how much time I would spend trying to figure out there's got to be some way that I'm superior to everybody in this room. <laughs> Maybe not in one way, you know? And it's like, oh my God. It's just, it's been such a relief for me to um, kind of recognize just how uh, alienating that is. That, you know, I like it alienates me from other people. And um, turning to more, uh, cultivating more of appreciative joy, 
you know, kind of appreciating all of the, the skills and all of the, you know, the wisdom and the heartfelt love that, that everyone brings to a group like this. Um, you know, there is, a, there is an alternative to just living in the comparing mind mode. I'm Lewis. Um, I think that one thing that we haven't discussed quite, although it's been, it's certainly been there all this time, is the second arrow principle. That sure, we all suffer from the affronts of life, but by realizing that these are human characteristics and that everyone suffers from them, we avoid taking that personal stance that, oh, this is me, you know, mm-hmm. suffering here, rather than, yes, we all suffer from these things. Mm-hmm. That's what I was thinking. Great. So could you tell the other people here, maybe some of you haven't heard of the second arrow? You heard, heard of the suffering? Okay. Um, I believe that the Buddha asked his, his following um, if it would be painful to be struck by an arrow. And they all agreed that, yes, this was indeed quite a painful process. And then he asked, if you then were struck with a second arrow, would that be more painful? And they yes, this would add more suffering to the suffering already incurred. And he said, well, life often will wound us with one arrow, but we do not have to put in the second arrow ourselves. Hmm. If that's a fair paraphrase of the... Yeah, that's great. Yeah, or put in the fifth or the sixth or the seventh arrow. I mean, it's kind of like that email was the first arrow. But, you know, I I could see myself, you know, like with a quiver full of arrows (laughs) kind of aimed at myself. So you had a point in your story where you said that you realized that it wasn't the the disagreement, I guess, that took place around the prioritization was not necessarily a, wasn't a reflection on you, right? That it wasn't a questioning of your judgment. And how important was that recognition in your own path to resolving this? Well. You know, I, I, I breathed a sigh of relief when I found, you know, like when my boss first told me that it was some upper management person that um, had made this change or had sort of pushed down this decision. What came to me about a minute after my boss 
told me how this was like an upper management decision was the last line from the movie from Chinatown. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Chinatown. Um, Jack Nicholson plays this um, cop and his first assignment was in Chinatown and he said you never knew what was going on there. Like he never knew if he was even helping and at the end of the movie his partner tells him forget it Jake, this is Chinatown. And I realized like upper management to me is like Chinatown. You know, it's like I don't even try to understand what they're they're doing up there, you know. So it so it's not so it it wasn't personal for me because it wasn't like they even know who I was or had I mean, God forbid they would have read the proposals or, you know, kind of made some parallel judgment of these proposals in the same way that I did. That, you know, they look at spreadsheets, they saw certain keywords, they said, we want proposals that in your little blurb have this keyword. You know, it's like, and that was it, you know. And so, um, so there's a lot of different levels, you know. I mean, there's, there's kind of a sense of wounding of pride but there's also a, um, I guess I prize rationality. And so there was a sense to me that rational scientific thinking, um, well, how can I say this? A decision was my ability to make clear rational scientific judgments wasn't being brought into doubt because <laughs> I don't think it was, you know, the, the upper levels of management don't sort of work on that level. So that's, that's quite a judgment, a personal judgment on my part as well. And I hope none of them listen to this talk. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, there's still a sense of self. I mean, you know, I, I still it's still important to me that um, my contributions are um, respected and valued. And they won't always be sometimes. But the hardest part was all of this, the judgments that I was making about my, and when I saw the decision, mostly I was judging, I was second-guessing myself and, you know, kind of... Um, yeah, it was, most, it was mostly the, how it was affecting the stories that I tell, about, tell to myself about myself. So, all, so the, all of those stories that I had made up just kind of like went away. Yes. Hi, I'm Jessica. Um, it, that was really powerful to me, what you said a few minutes ago about that you used to need to feel superior to other people in some way and that really resonated with me and and I was interested in how you how you sort of moved beyond that or is that part of the no self of uh, of not comparing yourself to other people or I just wondered if you could talk more about yeah that. there is there is a, a thing called comparing mind a conceit 
And it's one of, it's one of considered in, in Buddhism one of the fetters and one of the last ones to go. So first of all, I should tell you, it's not like I don't compare myself to other people all the time. <laughs> and that process of like trying to figure out how I'm superior to everyone, it still goes on. But it's not nearly as interesting to me or as, as compelling. So... Um, You know, and and as I got older, I I also realized the things that I used to think that I was superior about, they're falling away. You know, I mean, a lot of you know, a lot of the things that I used to hold as this is what makes me superior, they're falling away. You know, my memory kind of falling away, my analytical skills are falling away. But as that falls away, that some of that stuff lets go then I can start to see and appreciate other people, you know, kind of see them, you know, realize I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't have to see them as superior to me or as inferior to me or even the same as me, that they're just, you know, they're, they're just another human being. So... Um, it's been quite a relief. I mean, it's 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 a relief to to have that to have that process um, relax. Great. Well, thank you all for coming tonight. It's nine o'clock. Um, so next week. I'm imagining we'll spend more time with impermanence. And if you'd like, you can, you can think over the next week of um, you know, insights you've had around either dukkha or impermanence or um, not-self. And um, you know, I'd invite you to bring your stories in and share them. Um, you know, we often get we often get so caught up in our own stories that um, that one of the ways we create a sense of self is that I'm the only person that ever thinks this way, and so by sharing these these thoughts that we have and these experiences we with, we have with each other, it can help us um, be freer of them. So. Uh, I'd encourage you to spend the next week, you know, look, looking at these three characteristics, both in meditation and just in your daily life. So, thank you all.